Last week, from Revelation 13, we saw the dragon summoning up the Roman beast from the churning sea, the sea of the nations. And we saw there that as the dragon was an imitator of the father, so the beast was a false Christ, a false son. And the beast from the sea, from the, from the raging nations, wages war on the saints. And the saints were called there in the text last week to endurance and to faith in the midst of coming imprisonments and executions. You may remember the text said, if you're destined to captivity, to captivity you shall go. If you're destined to the sword, to the sword you shall go. So today, in Revelation 13, beginning at verse 11, we see that the church is not only up against the empire, but the church also faces a a, a crucial and equally evil and demonic ally of the empire, or an ally of the beast. And so we'll look at this text today under four headings. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. The second beast, the signs, the mark, and the number. So, first then, the the second beast, or, or the land beast. Verse 11, then I saw another, a second beast, coming out of the earth or the land. So the first beast, the empire itself, rose out of the sea. This one rises from the earth. And together... As we will see, they represent the foreign power of Rome and its local, regional delegates in the earth. And that the, the two beasts, the fact that they come from land and sea, indicates that together they claim dominion, total dominion and supremacy. And this is the reason why, back in chapter 10 of the book, Of course, it was a long time ago that we looked at chapter 10. But back in chapter 10, Christ appears. And he appears with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. Now we find out that together, the land beast and the sea beast are going to challenge the sovereignty of God and his Christ over the nations. And the beast that that John sees here, this second or land beast, has two horns like a lamb and speaks like a dragon. So, it appears that this beast is kind of a parody of the lamb, but that's not quite correct. The beast has two horns, but the lamb has seven horns in chapter 5. And so, this beast here is more precisely a parody of the lamb's two witnesses. And here again, I'm going to challenge your memory. I'll just remind you that back in chapter 11, we saw that the, the lamb had two witnesses, two lampstands, two olive trees, and that those witnesses were essentially the whole church, the prophetic, spirit-filled, witness-bearing church. So this beast is a sort of parody of the prophetic, spirit-filled church. And this is confirmed by the fact that later in the book of Revelation, this land beast is called the false prophet. And so he's a parody, he's a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit's work in and through the prophetic church. He does the work for the empire, 
that the church does for Christ. So this beast is an ally of the Roman state. He serves as a propagandist for the empire. The prophetic church is Christ's propaganda arm. Here I'm using the word propaganda in its neutral sense, right? The the church is Christ's propaganda arm. We propagate the truth about Christ. The land beast is the empire's propaganda arm. And we're told in the text, verse 12, that this beast exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. It has delegated authority. The spirit-empowered congregation stands in the presence of Christ, and it exercises his divine authority. The land beast stands in the presence of the empire and exercises its demonic authority. He makes the earth and its inhabitants, the text say, says, worship the first beast. What does the church do? The church in the spirit leads people to worship Christ. The land beast leads people to worship the empire. This is what John is setting out here. And again, he describes the empire as that which had a mortal wound and was healed. And we looked at this last week. We looked at the death and the resurrection of the empire and its connection to the Nero myth. The idea that Nero had not really died, but that Nero would come back and he would rule the empire. So the point here is that as the resurrection of Christ causes the church to lead men to worship him, so the resurrection of the empire causes its propaganda arm, the land beast, to make the earth worship it. These things are very consciously being set out by John. So that what this, this second beast is doing is he makes the blasphemous claims of the empire plausible. He makes them living. He makes them believable. He brings them to life. And so, to be more specific... This land beast is the local provincial authorities scattered throughout the empire, probably in connection with the imperial priesthood, which was also scattered throughout the empire, right? The, The priests who would offer the sacrifices in the various pagan temples, along with the local authorities, religious, Roman religious authorities, right? Spread throughout the empire. These are the enforcers throughout the Roman Empire of the worship of the beast, the first beast. Another another way to put this is, just like the Holy Spirit makes Christ omnipresent in the earth, this second beast makes the empire omnipresent. He's the empire's local spies, local authorities. So, the second beast is the local arm of the empire. And so you have a kind of unholy trinity set out. Where the dragon imitates the father, he begets the the beast, the first beast, which is the empire. The empire is a false Christ, a false son. And then the empire sends forth its land beast, an imitation of the way Christ sends forth his spirit through the church. So, that's the second beast. We'll have more to say about him later. The second point is the signs... So, Revelation 13, verse 13. This second beast performs great signs. So, he imitates the signs that the Spirit performs through the apostolic church. 
Remember, Jesus said that there would be false prophets who would perform great signs and great wonders to lead men astray. He even makes, the text says, fire come down from heaven in front of people. He counterfeits God's judgments. You might remember, as strange and mysterious as it might be for moderns to believe, right? Pharaoh's magicians were, to a limited extent, able to counterfeit Moses' signs. You might remember, back in chapter 11, those two witnesses, that prophetic church, Back there, the text said that out of their mouths, and that's out of your mouth, right? Out of the mouth of the prophetic church pours forth fire, fiery judgments on the enemies of the gospel. So again, the parody here becomes evident, right? The, the, the preaching and the witness of the church calls down fire from heaven, the fire of the gospel and its judgment. The land beast, the false church, calls down judgment on all who rebel against the empire or the Roman beast. And by the signs that this land beast is allowed to work, he deceives those who dwell on the earth. So these are demonic wonders and they work. People are deceived by them. They become state worshipers. They're seduced. And what the land beast does Next is he orders the people to make an image for the beast. So he creates little images of the beast throughout the empire. Right? The, church, the church wants to form men into the image of Christ. The imperial priesthood, the local provincial councils, they want men to form images of the Roman beast. So again... The, the apocalyptic language, the prophetic language that John is using is setting this up in terms of essentially a holy conflict. Now, we saw some of this earlier in the book of Revelation. The the Caesar's image was regularly set up in the temples of Asia Minor. So John is explicitly referring to this, right? You could go to a local temple far from Rome, and in that temple there would be an image of the emperor. In John's term, that's an image of the first beast being set up by the local second beast. Earlier than the book of Revelation, Caligula tried to set up his image in the temple in Jerusalem. And about the same time as Revelation, Domitian, the emperor Domitian, uh, set up a huge statue for his own worship in the town of Ephesus. So the false prophet, the land beast, he gets compliance. With his decrees, he gets people to set up images throughout the empire. You can't escape the arm of the state. It has its local enforcers. And so in verse 15, the second beast is allowed to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image of the first beast might even speak. This is a metaphorical way of saying he makes the beast's claims persuasive. He makes them a living reality. Just as the Holy Spirit breathes on you and quickens you and makes you an image of God so that you can make the gospel believable to the world. In in, in a similar way, these local authorities give life to the empire. The the, The image 
of the beast comes alive. There were a number of pseudo-magical tricks like this, like uh, ventriloquism and the manufacture of false lightning. These were used in the temples of John's time. They were even used in the courts of the emperor and in his governors. This is documented stuff. The church fathers, the early church fathers, for example, Irenaeus, who's a second century father, document various illusionists and demonically inspired wonder workers who could allegedly make statues move or weep or even speak. And it's not just documented by the church fathers. There are sophisticated pagan writers of the time who also speak about these devices. Of course, the pagans pour scorn on them. They think they're fabrications. But the phenomenon here is well attested. These these shrines and their rituals were public. And they were considered increasingly to require the participation of the whole province. That's what the land beast does. The land beast says it doesn't matter that you live in North Dakota. You're going to worship the state. So, the pressure on Christians to conform, to burn a little incense before the image of the emperor, was enormous. So, I mean, you feel that pressure to some extent in various quarters today. I mean, who needs all this heavy-duty theology about God and Jesus? Christianity is just about loving one another. Just burn a little little incense to the emperor and then love your neighbor as yourself. You don't need all this confessional stuff about Jesus and the Father and all that doctrine. So this pressure is ancient. And the goal, as the rest of verse 15 makes clear, what's the goal? The goal is universal conformity. Right? The, the land beast does these fraudulent wonders so that, the text says, he might cause those who refuse to worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, I may have read this here before, but I'll read it again. Um, because to, to some extent this can sound like just a bunch of symbolic stuff and Um, perhaps it's not touching down, but it's very real to John, very real to the churches of Asia Minor, and the symbolism is, is really not incredibly hard to decode. This was actually happening and soon to happen. Um, so, for example, we have a letter uh, that comes from about 111 A.D., just after the, the time of the book of Revelation, and it comes from Pliny the Younger, who was the governor of the province of Bithynia and Pontus, essentially this part of Asia Minor Minor, where the churches in the book of Revelation are from. So we have a letter from the governor of this province, or this region, to the emperor Trajan in 110 or 111 AD, where he writes to the emperor, so... As I've set this out, the emperor represents the first beast. Pliny, the governor, represents the second beast. And Pliny writes to Trajan about the procedures he's adopting to deal with Christians in Asia Minor. And here's what the land beast says to the head of the sea beast in this letter from 110. He says this, For the moment... This is the line I have taken with all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christians. 
I have asked them in person if they are Christians. And if they admit it, I repeat the question a second time and a third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that their stubbornness and their unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. The beast brooks no rivals. You'll be viewed as stubborn and unshakably obstinate. So Pliny continues, I considered that I should dismiss any who denied that they were or ever had been Christians when they had repeated after me a formula of invocation to the gods and had made offerings of wine and incense to your statue and furthermore had reviled the name of Christ, none of which things I understand any genuine Christian can be induced to do. That is the land beast in action in 110 AD in Asia Minor, insisting that these Christians in Asia Minor worship the empire in the person of the emperor. So that is the signs. The third point here is the mark. Verse 16. Also it forces everyone, both small and great, rich and poor, slave and free. There are no exemptions. They're all to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. The mark here is not literal. It's, it's a figurative mark of spiritual submission. It's a parody of the seal or the mark placed on true believers in, in chapter 7. The empire brands its own as chattel. Even as in the law of God, and this was the Old Testament lesson today in Deuteronomy 6, the law was to be on your hands and before your eyes. It's a parody of that. The, the empire's mark is either placed on your right hand, the, the place of action, or on your forehead, the place of assent or intellectual allegiance, doctrine and practice. And so the mark here is evoking the emperor's seal, which was impressed on business contracts, and his image was impressed on the coins in the realm. And it's very important to see this. The mark has a distinctively economic reference. So the false prophet is an ally of the beast. It's a religious alliance. But it's a religion which entails coercion. Economic coercion. And thus verse 17 says they are marked. Now get this. They are marked so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. So it, it, it works like this. Refuse to worship the beast, and you're economically excluded from the markets and the commerce of the empire. Right? We saw this way back in the beginning of Revelation. The trade guilds would force Christians into economic hardship because they wouldn't burn this incense to the emperor. The end game, or at least one of the end games of this kind of statism, is total economic control. And the end of Verse 17 makes it clear that the mark is equivalent to the name of the beast, or alternatively, the number of his name. Now, I have to clarify something here. What is in view here is the name or the number of the first beast, not the second beast. The second beast is the false prophet. He marks people with the name of the first beast. 
So the number belongs to the first beast, the empire. And that brings us to the fun part. Not that these first three points have not been fun. (laughs) But this is the fun part. Um, And that's the number. Everybody wants to know this number. I'll probably disappoint you because I'm going to avoid a very long and complicated and speculative history where the number can be anything from Nero to Ronald Reagan. Um, And I'm going to stick with what seems to me to be the simplest and most obvious solution. Verse 18, you'll notice, says this. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding or insight calculate the number of the beast. So what, what is in view here is that it says what we need is spiritual discernment. This is not about intellectual cleverness. So I suggest that overly subtle interpretations should be avoided. The number, the text says, is man's number. That is, it's mankind's number. And his number is 666. So most basically, six is the number of man. Man was made on the sixth day. It's associated with human imperfection, human deficiency. It's the number which falls short of the perfection, the divine perfection of the number seven. And so three sixes would be a complete anti-Trinitarian perfection of imperfection. Six, six, six. Remember, John has been setting up Trinitarian parodies in this whole section of the book. So there's three sixes for that reason, I think. And and, and the biblical background here would be 1 Kings 10. And what happens there is Solomon, he acquires 666 talents of gold. This is against the laws of kingship in Israel, which forbade the excessive acquisition of wealth by kings. And Solomon does this at the peak of his kingship before his fall. And so this number, 666, is already, already in the biblical witness, it's associated with the perversion of kingship and with economic idolatry, which is also what's going on in in Revelation at this point. So 666 here refers to the empire, to the beast and his followers, the perfection of imperfection. It refers to the perverse and always failing attempt to be God. And the church is being called to discern this, to discern behind the masks of the empire its own idolatries. Now, I skipped a lot here. There are people who are convinced that the 666 means Nero or 666 means this or that. But there are tricks required to get that to work that way. And the the tricks seem to me to be, at least if not questionable, even more so they're implausible. So this brings us to how this text might apply in our modern age. I actually think this is one of the passages in in, uh, Revelation that applies more easily than some others. But nevertheless, we have to be careful in doing this. I might draw an application that perhaps you won't agree with. I can tell you this. By the time we're done with this series, I will say enough things to to offend you, whether you're on the political right or the political left. There's plenty of material here. In this book. But let me say this. So we have modern democratic states. And they don't look perhaps. And they don't feel a lot like this beast. But we need to be careful. right? We, we, we have a situation. Where we are always. 
uh, making, we always have messianic pretensions. Right? American foreign policy, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, is full of breathtakingly messianic language. It's beastly language. And while we may or may not be the beast, we've often been allied with beasts. Often the argument is we have to be allied with this beast to be against a worse beast. Or we're allied with quasi-beasts. The point is, you should be awake and your eyes should be open and you should be thinking through these things. Right? You should not just be a blind, knee-jerk American nationalist. If you want to pursue this, I highly recommend a book called Between Babel and the Beast by Peter Lightheart, which looks at this. We are not yet killing people who refuse to worship the state or to submit to its propaganda arm. But we are killing people, unborn people by the millions, in the names of idolatrous democratic ideals. Right? The broader trend here is that you have a paternal state that's going to seek to shape you by its enlightened and beneficent judgment at every point, and now in almost every institution. To socially engineer, to monitor, to control, to watch, to regulate, to subjugate, to create compliant groupthink. And we have to resist this. And it does this with the help, the pseudo-wonders of technology. Which blinds people and helps them worship the great bestial powers. That's where the real power and awe in our culture is. Now... If you think that at some point, in my view, in the not-too-distant future, you're not going to be forced to worship our modern, caring, beast-like, corrupted ideals, you're not paying attention. If you think everything is fine and dandy here, you're not paying attention. Now, I don't want to be alarmist either, because I don't know the future. But not long ago, not long ago, two mayors of large American cities said that a company whose CEO expressed relatively harmlessly the Christian view of marriage, they said that that company should not be allowed to buy and sell in those cities. That's land beast behavior. That's land beast behavior. If you don't do this, you can't buy or you can't sell. We will strip you of your livelihood. Now, they backed off. They backed off. But the logic of the false prophet's propaganda is unassailable. And it may eventually work itself out. Maybe there'll be some settlement and there'll be some peaceful uh, coexistence. But the logic is, if you don't worship, you don't buy and sell. Just try now, forget the future, just try now to become an executive at, well, I won't name the firms, any number of Silicon Valley firms. Just try to be an ex- become an executive there who dissents in public from the land beast's proclamations on sexual ethics. I mean, you, can, you could be a low-level employee but you're not going to be an executive. Try it in academia. Try it in academia. See how your career goes. See if you can buy and sell. 
Carl Truman is a historian. He's a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He put the matter this way. About, he did this about three years ago. He said this. He was speaking to, to young people. He said, you really kid only yourself if you think you can be an Orthodox Christian and be at the same time cool enough and hip enough to cut it in the wider world. Frankly, he says, in a couple of years, it will not matter how much ink you sport, how much fair trade coffee you drink, how many craft brews you can name, how much urban lingo you can spout, how many art house movies you can find that Redeemer figure in, how much money you divert to social justice. Maintaining biblical sexual ethics alone will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. So, maybe he's wrong, but there's a lot of indications that he's not wrong. Idolatry in our situation is probably both harder to detect than it was for these Christians, but it's also easier at this point to disentangle ourselves from. And this calls for wisdom and understanding, John says. We have to recognize and unmask that history is full of land beasts who are trying to get you to serve the great empire. Maybe it's some conglomeration of the media and corporation and government and false churches. Those would be, in my opinion, the threats you have to watch in our day. But we have to disentangle ourselves from this stuff now lest it becomes a harder thing to disentangle ourselves from later. And our witness, the witness of the church, may be just what's needed to prevent a paternalistic state. Now, a paternalistic state is not a beast. I want to be clear about that. I'm not stating that a paternalistic state is a beast. But paternalistic states can become beasts. And beasts exact a very high price for nonconformity. And that price begins as it began with the early Christians. It begins with stripping you of your livelihood. It ends with stripping you of your life. So you are marked with the Lamb seal. You do not have the mark of the beast on you. You have been baptized, which means you have Christ's mark on you. And no man or woman or child can be marked with two seals. So the call here is to live out that mark. May the Lord grant us wisdom, holy wisdom and discernment to remain faithful. Amen.